would I have had these opportunities if I was in Adelaide? Would I have been so fortunate? And I don't know if I would have because, you know, um, Steve often says that, he said, Broken Hill, you can be whoever you want to be here. Meet Heather Pearce, the CEO of Thrive Medical and an occupational therapist. She is a visionary and problem solver who works with others to achieve outcomes for regional people. She is today's guest on A Home in the Outback, an independent podcast about people living, working and creating in the far west of New South Wales. I'm your host, Catherine Waite. Heather was born in the small town of Cleve on the Air Peninsula in South Australia and grew up on a farm. She went to boarding school and then university in Adelaide and studied occupational therapy. Her first job out of university was working in the return to work field, which she really enjoyed. After a brief stint working overseas, she moved to Broken Hill in 2010. She saw there was no return to work consultants in town and set up a business. Over the years, it's morphed and changed to respond to the needs of the town. However, after she connected with local businessman Steve Radford, she got the courage to step out and purchase an MRI machine and open Thrive Medical in 2021. Heather speaks to the ongoing challenges and specific needs places like Broken Hill have when it comes to providing health services. Along her journey, she provides advice and reflects on how someone from away can build a life in Broken Hill. Well, Heather, thank you for um, taking your time to chat to me today. A little bit about your life. Let's start from the beginning. Where where were you born and raised? Oh, Catherine, I was born uh, in a Cleve Hospital, which is on Air Peninsula, um, and I grew up there for until I went to boarding school in year eight. Um, my dad was a farmer. My mum was a teacher, um, and I, I follow all these people on Instagram about um, you know lifestyles that are self-sufficient and I reflect back and ours was very close to that. It was lots of time outside and uh, my brother, older brother and older sister, um, we had sheep and cattle and grew a lot of vegetables and ate our own meat and yeah had a really close network of friends too which are, are still important to me today. Sounds like it was a really um, lovely childhood. It was a great start. I'm very fortunate to have had um, and I think I'll you know, a lot of um, my work now, we're exposed to people who haven't had the start that I did, and I think it's one of the, the biggest forms of privilege is growing up how I did. What was it like moving to Adelaide um, and going to boarding school there? Yeah, that was interesting. So I, I think because we were, you know, I was the youngest and my older, older brother and sister had gone away to boarding school, so it was just mum and I for some time. Um, and she was older when she had me, so you know, we were, that people would, neighbours would drop in, but it was quite, um, we were, you know, by ourselves for most of the day. And then to be to go to boarding school, where you're with, you know, six people in a dorm, and you're around people all the time, it was a bit of a, a, a shock, I guess. Um, but schooling-wise, you know, the opportunities that I've had since then, I don't think would have perhaps been possible if I didn't have those opportunities. So, um, yeah, and met some really lovely people too who are still in my life today. So what did you study at university? So when I finished year 12 I went straight into university and studied occupational therapy um, and yeah I, I really didn't know what OT was at that time but um, I had an older cousin who had chosen that as her, her study pathway and she really enjoyed it so uh, and I got a similar score to what you needed so I thought oh, that will do so I've been so lucky that I actually loved the job <laughs> that I, I sort of randomly chose. Um, OT, occupational therapy, brief summary for someone who doesn't know anything about OT, what would you say it is? Yeah, um, I would say it looks at the things that you want to do, but for whatever reason, you can't quite get there to do them. And we look at what, what the barriers are and try to come up with solutions um, to help with activities of daily living. So that can be so different, I guess, for, for someone in a wheelchair after a spinal cord incident, uh, accident, or if it's you know a child who um, has poor fine motor control that can't do the shoelaces, it, I guess the setting um, and the people we work with is really bearable. But at the end of the day, it's trying to get people back to what that they want to do. So what was your first job after university? Yeah, so I, um, at that time, um, and sorry, I'm backtracking, but 
at, at the current market for OTs, it's really hard to, to find OTs to employ. Um, but at that time, I think there were about 10 of us who went for a, a new graduate job in Port Augusta. And I wasn't successful in that. So I thought, oh, how, how am I going to you know, use this four-year degree? And uh, I was living in Adelaide at that point in time and a job came up with the Department of Education and Children's Services and it was as a case manager or a turn to work consultant. Um, and you could either have an occupational therapy, social work, psychology, physiotherapy background or nursing actually. And um, I, I thought, oh, that would, that'll be fine until I find a, a specific OT job. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd really had no idea what I was getting myself into, um, but it, I guess the, uh, I, sta I stayed there for, for a number of years and um, throughout that time, even though, yeah, I was, to be honest, I was pretty rubbish to start off with because I didn't, I didn't, I, I had read the legislation, but I didn't understand it. I didn't understand how it applied to these people's um, situations. And, you know, I was young, I was 20, 21 and working with people, um, teachers who, you know, were probably teaching me a number of years ago um, and you know teachers are you know their job is to be in charge in front of the class so you know having a um, someone like me trying to tell them what to do was rather challenging. But you really enjoyed it? I did actually I, I ended up finding um, you know there were so many reasons I, I think with um, and that was particularly with the workers compensation system there's so many reasons why someone at that point of being referred to me were off of work uh, you know they could have had um, they could have had a very significant injury, so they were still in that rehab pathway. They could hate their boss. <laughs> they could um, have really fixed views about pain that, that um, they thought that they couldn't do anything until the pain went away. Uh, you know, they, they could want to transfer, and that was their motivating factor. So I guess being a bit of a, a detective and trying to come up with, it, with solutions, I really loved that part of the job. And I, I've worked out... You know, I guess from growing up in the country and, and I had some pretty ordinary uni jobs, um, but I'd learnt to, to build rapport with people and to, um, you know, to get them to trust you. And I think once you do that, you get a lot more out of the people that you're working with. So it actually got a whole lot easier because I had those foundational skills, I think, from, from the jobs and from the upbringing that I had. So you do this for a couple of years this in this kind of return to work field and then somehow you find yourself moving to Broken Hill. Yes. So we, <laughs> my husband at the time and I had a bit of a, a deal um, and by this time I had a two-year-old, uh, Cameron, and I really wanted to go and work in the UK and, and see a bit of Europe and, and Ryan at that stage didn't really. So, um, you know, I suggested that if we moved to the UK then I'd move back to Broken Hill with him so we lived in the UK um, between 2007 2008 and then we moved back to Broken Hill, uh, to Adelaide actually and um, I'd had Harrison a second son and his um, his father wasn't doing well health wise so and had a family business so at that point Ryan said well is it time can we should we move back to Broken Hill so yeah in a roundabout way, um, I certainly didn't think we would still be here 13 years later, but <laughs> ended up there and, and still enjoying living here. Um, and so you worked at the hospital for a short time, but you then found yourself back in this workplace of or this field of return to work. So how did that happen? Yeah, interestingly, so, um, I, and I think, you know, I've hats off to people who work in the hospital system because, um, you know, they, there's some amazing people who do a great job um, in that environment. For me, I felt a little bit like a square peg in a, um, in a round hole. I, di I didn't know where I fitted. And um, there was someone who rang, it was a, a rehab company, and they were looking for a local OT to contract to them um, to do some assessments. And they said, do you know anyone? And I said, bring me back after five on this number. Um, and that's where it all really started. It was um, an opportunity that came up. I, I'd had an ABN um, from doing some private work in Adelaide and I thought actually there's, there's a, such a, a scope for this to be offered privately because at that point in time there, there weren't any other private allied health service or occupational therapy services. In Broken Hill. In Broken Hill, yeah. So it was a real niche. And so how did that turn into a business uh, and you because you've grown talk to me about that process of the number of businesses you've had now yeah and it started it's it's rookie mistake we started with a very long name of 
ATMAC occupational therapy, which every time you pick up the phone, you don't want to be reproducing that. <laughs> it thrives much better. <laughs> um, but another OT and I, you know, uh, she saw the need as well, and uh, we decided to go into private practice together. So um, about a year into that, though, um, she wanted to become, or she she wanted to change in direction from being an OT, so she joined um, and became a paramedic. Um, and I said, well, I really want to give this a proper, a decent shot. So um, in that year, though, we, we started with um, veteran the Department of Veteran Affairs, so anyone who's been to war um, gets a gold card and they can, they're able to access services for equipment and for home modifications. So um, that was a lot of our work and also... Um, mining medical so functional assessments when you know people were going for a job on the mine um, we started doing those at that point in time too so I guess after that year of doing them I just went there is a lot more but this is just the tip of the the iceberg really so we bought um, an old or I bought an old residential or not an old an older residential house um, in Morgan Street and we turned that into I guess a bit of a, a clinic um, and that was probably you know three years um, down the track. We went from Atmac to Interhealth was the, the brand of our, our new business um, and it just started off with myself and another occupational therapist and then yeah within a few years we had um, a physio, um, a speech pathologist and we we're doing a lot of these medicals so you know it requires a functional assessment, a hearing test, a spirometry test, a drug and alcohol test, sometimes a chest x-ray, a lead test and in talking to employers they were frustrated that there wasn't one spot that they could have all those tests undertaken. So you know I, um, I had a friend John Wenham at the time who um, he used to walk past the practice and I said to him would you think about coming in and just seeing these people that they just need to get signed off? We've done all the other work with them. Um, and he said, sure, that, that's a good way to start. So, and then within, you know, six months, he um, said, well, let's see if there seems to be a need here. I'll give it, you know, um, all my morning. So I'll give it, you know, five mornings a week. And then, yeah, within a, an, another period of time, we had Dr. Victoria Bradley joined us and Dr. Crossman joined us as well. So we had, yeah, this medical and allied health team working out of this tiny space, which we look back and think, I don't really know how we did that. But it was, I think it, it grew organically because um, we had the right team and it also grew organically because the need in the community was there and that was what we were responding to. Um, I think often people come to Broken Hill and they sort of try and do it top down, whereas if you do it from bottom up, you're really getting a really good understanding of what what people are going through and what um, on how to fix the problems that they're having. A couple of years later, you find yourself um, with an opportunity to meet Steve Radford. Um, mm. And now most people would know who Steve is in town, but if you're new to town and you're listening to this, who is Steve Radford? Yeah, so Steve lives in and breathes Broken Hill. He, um, he has this saying where he says, you're either from Broken Hill or you wish you were. <laughs> his, he, um, his grandfather was one of the, you know, Les Radford was um, one of, I guess, the, the primary um, people in building the town. And then Gary Radford, uh, who is Steve's father, um, was probably the biggest employer in town for a, a number of years. And Steve at that time, um, you know, owned... Consolidated Mining and Civil, um, Basin and Sand Logistics. Um, he also owns Porsche Gold Mine, um, and since then he bought the, the Broken Hill Pub. So he's got, you know, he's um, an astute businessman. Um, and often when I'm describing Steve, you know, if you you look at your iPhone and you look at, you know, just the photo lens and you, you just see this bit, and then you go on that panoramic setting and it makes you like, you know, go around a whole. 360 and and that's what Steve does he looks at all the bits and and sees how they're all going to go together and I guess for Steve what he was frustrated with was you know trying to get people to come and work in Broken Hill if you don't have medical services um, then that's that's pretty important in terms of trying to attract people to Broken Hill um, and then the other side of it was his father Gary had been unwell probably um, the 12 months before we really went into business and he, you know all these things that um, Gary needed, like an MRI, um, weren't available in Broken Hill. And, and, you know, Steve in Steve's way was just like, well, we'll just buy one, you know, we'll buy this. And I said, do you know how much they cost? Like, they're like a million dollars, you need this chiller unit thing and you need, you know, you need a radiologist, you need a radiographer. 
and he's, <laughs> he's an old, it's cheaper than a bulldozer or whatever piece of equipment they use in their mining world. So um, I think for Steve, his motivator was, you know, for, he, for someone, for his family and for him who lives in Broken Hill, he wanted these services to become available. So, yeah, so Good Friday, um, I was going to the gym, um, which was run by Brock Martin, and Brock had done his apprenticeship with Steve. Um, and he said, did you want to meet Steve? And I said, yes, please. So we'd actually tried to put an MRI in previously um, at Shop 10, which is in the Coles complex. And what we'd done, because of the, the overhead costs of it, we'd put a, like a base grade MRI in. It wasn't successful because I guess if the surgeons are looking at that as to, you know, should I operate or not, they want the image to be top notch. And what we were producing was not top notch. So... Um, and, and we were limited to what we were, could do. So we couldn't do contrast, we couldn't do any organs, we couldn't do brain. So yes, we, we, we identified there's a problem. We tried to find a solution and it didn't really fit the mark. So that was the sort of point where we met with Steve and Steve's like, well, let's, you know, let's, if we're gonna do it, let's do it properly. And he said, well, um, he'd already purchased the old Legion Club, which is where we're situated now. And he said, let's, you know, refurbish this and turn this into a, you know, a comprehensive, um, allied health, medical, imaging, everything in one spot, practice. And and I just went, righto, let's go. <laughs> so, oh, it wasn't always that smooth. <laughs> to be honest, it was a bit bumpy. Because I, I guess after, you know, 10 years of building something, you, you take it pretty personally. And, you know, we had a few speed bumps along the way. But um, if I reflect back, you know, what Steve really gave us was an opportunity to... to expand something that, that I didn't really even see how big it was or had the potential to be. So you're effectively business partners now? Yeah, so we, um, we're shareholders in, uh, in Thrive and uh, I'm an 80% shareholder, Steve's 20%. Uh, and Steve, you know, we have an advisory board which Steve sits on and he, he's there, I guess, when I need him to say, what do you think about this? But he, he's pretty, lets us go with the day-to-day the -day operational management of the business. What is an MRI machine and how does it differ from a CT machine? Yes, yeah, so just keep in mind that I'm an occupational therapist, not a radiographer. But in layman's terms, it's like a ginormous magnet that um, is, like, there's helium gas that um, makes it run. And that helium gas has to be kept at a certain temperature so that it um, can operate effectively. Uh, it's different from CT. It, things will show up in an MRI that won't show up in a CT. So it's it's considered the gold standard for imaging. What's it used to kind of scan? That's a really good question. So there are so many different types of MRI, which I certainly didn't know about. There's um, musculoskeletal type, so you know knees, hips, feet, um, anything relating to joints. There's organs, so. Um, you know, a brain, um, yeah, there'll they'll, they'll, uh, be a contrast MRI, so they put um, contrast through and can see where it's going in the body. So there's um, uh, like the endocrine system, there's prostate, there's breast, there's so many different types of MRI that can be um, completed. Sometimes there are additional co um, coils and things that are needed to do certain ones which we don't quite have yet, and they have to be referred on to Adelaide. So um, is it mostly used in preparation for surgery or diagnosis or...? Yeah, usually what will happen is someone will see their doctor, um, they'll do a clinical examination and say, oh, okay, yeah, you know, your knee's giving way, it could be a cruciate ligament, then you'd have the MRI to, to really see what's going on inside. Um, sometimes it's used throughout a process so for example if someone's palliative it will be used at certain points um, to see how you know a condition is progressing um, main, main use is diagnostically though so before the MRI was here in Broken Hill what would a patient have to do yeah often they would be you know um, have a CT and then uh, they would um, make a, a a diagnosis without all the information that you would have in another location. Alternatively, they would fly them out. So for things like a suspected stroke, um, we do a lot of uh, inpatient work with the hospital. So they'll transfer them here, we'll do the scan, they'll go back to hospital. So now they can really diagnose that without having to fly them to Adelaide, which is fantastic.
mm-hmm. for I guess knowing what you're dealing with and being able to treat it accordingly. And I guess the question I had was why hadn't the hospital put in an MRI before now? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess going back to the, <laughs> it needs to be kept really cold and we live in a, it's a balmy 39 degrees out there today. Um, so I guess logistically it, it can be considered a bit um, high risk. I think, you know, it's quite a large machine. There might not have been space to put it. And also we've, you know, we've got between 19,000 people. So I think why Steve and I wanted to do it is because of our remoteness. Um, yes, you know, we can go to Mildura, but you're looking at other people like White Cliffs and Wilcannia and, and, you know, if it's not here, then it's an additional how many hours that they have to travel. So I think it's a combination of, you know, was there enough volume for it? Um, at that point, there was no... Um, you couldn't bulk bill new MRIs without it having a provider number and probably the, the servicing and maintenance costs. And they're extortionally expensive to get... Well, actually, I say extortionally expensive. It's probably like a quarter of a Sydney house, but um, they're, 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 ex- they're an expensive piece of imaging equipment that requires pretty frequently serve like they need to be serviced pretty frequently which yeah is a is a large cost if you're not getting that volume out of it Mm. and I understand um, there was a change in how I guess imaging services happened with MRIs during COVID that um, Steve and yourself had a a part to play in that can you talk me through what the issue was and what happened yes absolutely so when we first looked at or Steve and I were first discussing it and I was telling him, I guess, all the reasons why we shouldn't do it. And one of them was because we didn't have a, a provider number. So what that means, I guess, I, I'm a health professional. I have a provider number. So if I see a patient, for example, someone with a, um, a gold card, um, like a war widow, then I can bill Medicare for that service. With imaging equipment, it's actually assigned to the piece of equipment. And the government had put a freeze on all new MRI provider numbers so there are only the existing provider numbers in the system so what that meant is even if you put a new MRI in like we did you couldn't bulk bill for things like that Medicare had items for which I was worried about um, and Steve kept saying you know build it and they'll come people were paying out of pocket so we were charging $260 which is actually quite reasonable that was like to break the break-even point but people were paying that instead of having to travel and I guess with that information and with um, Mark Coulton came numerous times to see it, he was able to see that there was the need here locally and push that further. And what resulted, um, and I guess also having COVID and people not being able to cross the border, it really um, showed that we needed those services locally. Um, they deregulated all the um, bulk billing from MRI billing, which is fantastic for... For anyone, I guess, living in remote Australia. That's wonderful. Yeah, and something I'm really proud of that we were part of that mm. and part of improving primary health care. Have you had any problems with the MRI since it's been installed? Oh, yes. Well, uh, um, if if there's a power loss, then, you know, obviously that chiller unit isn't so effective. So we have put in a, a sizable generator that used to um, power a whole mine site previously um, and that's that's great uh, however we had one instance where the chiller unit um, there was a power outage and the surge did something that I, I'm not familiar with but it wasn't great um, and the temperature dropped with the MRI and if the temperature drops to a certain point we call it the Q word here because it's it's quenched. We don't want to have to quench the unit because it's a very costly process. Um, but so it didn't get to down to that point, and we were very lucky that um, our operations manager's nephew was here to all hours trying to get it going again. So, so quenching the unit is when you turn it off, like turn the gas off, and yeah. that's expensive process. Ex- yeah, expensive, and it's helium gas that you're putting into the environment, which you really won't. I think this should be probably avoided at all costs. So there's, yeah, there's probably environmental ramifications of that as well. We're sitting in the boardroom now having this chat and it's beautiful. There's this beautiful wooden table and, but but talk to me um, about this building, just paint a picture of 
the number of rooms, what's here. Yeah. Um, I noticed, for example, I'm pretty sure it was on the RFDS Mm. One of the episodes I was watching and I was like, I think that's Thrive. Yeah, it was. It was yeah, they came. Actually, there's a funny story about that. So they came and they said, can we use your MRI? And we said, yep. Yeah. I said, you realise it's a ginormous magnet? And they're like, oh. <laughs> so they can't, you can't have film um, equipment near a ginormous magnet because if you want to, you should YouTube that because it's terrifying. <laughs> so that's why we've got all these like, stop. <laughs> Don't go any further if you have a pacemaker or, yeah. All these other what things. What happens? Um, it just like straight up. So it's you know phones um, and the phones go go yeah. So ah. everything tries to attach to the magnet. So yeah. So what they did was they created this big uh, set around the CT, so it looked like an MRI. Gotcha. I know you wouldn't even know, but yeah. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> but that, and they actually said, oh, um, you know, uh, what what to pay, what should we pay you? And I said. Oh, no, we can't, you can't pay us because um, we got one of our staff members actually through the last, the first season that was aired. She watched it and then we put a job ad out and she said, oh, yeah, I could, I could move to Broken Hill. So I was very grateful for their, their um, promotion of Broken Hill and, and they said they sort of had to pay us something. So we ended up, you know, it, it, but it was more that, you know, what they, um, I think what that's done for Broken Hill is really, you know, put us on the map in terms of it's the lifestyle here and, and the beauty of living out here. Mm. Um, we've got on off track a Sorry, little bit. No, no, it was great. Um, um, but the question was this Thrive building. Yeah, oh, talk me yes. through. Sorry, Catherine. That's all right. Yeah, so it was an old RSL club um, and uh, this was the kitchen on this side and had a big dance floor. So we gutted the whole thing um, we found where to put the MRI because it's obviously very heavy. And there used to be a bowling alley once upon a time in this building. So we put, and so it was already reinforced cement, so that was handy. So we put the MRI on that side of the building also so we could access it via ambulance if necessary. And then our main building, I guess, is separated into four areas. So we have a, um, a rehab or a gym area, which we're sort of um, sitting adjacent to now, and then an allied health sort of wing um, and then the front of the building is where you walk in um, has the medical consulting rooms um, so seven of those and then we have an imaging suite so we have an MRI CT x-ray two ultrasounds mammogram and bone density machine and then we've got pathology and um, our NDIS teams at the front of the building as well so it's yeah it's a huge space and I think um, yeah when we were working on it, it just it, the the sheer volume of it really once everything was gutted it's, it's a massive floor space and was it was it steve who really encouraged you to kind of go big like with these all these kind of services so. yeah he actually and we'd gone the other way we'd sort of started small and then just gradually tried to find other spots to make people fit and he said if you make it big like you build it and people come has that been true yes thank goodness <laughs> Because it was a big risk and I guess a lot of debt to go into, um, and he was entirely right. And he, it's really hard to to look to expand if you don't have that space and that room to be able to to offer those things. So, yeah, it's um, it, it, yeah, he's entirely right. And I think he also could see that Broken Hill needed it. Broken Hill needed, you know, someone to really um, look at what what was missing and try and find fill those gaps. Is it used? Like, are you booked? fully booked or what's kind of yeah that's oh yes so we've closed our books unfortunately for medical right at this point in time which um i feel you know guilty about on a um on a daily basis um but being said that being said i guess we want to be able to if someone rings up and needs to see a doctor we want to be able to offer them an appointment them an appointment in the next week so if you have if you offer if you open your books to everyone you can't do that for your existing patients and I feel we have a, a moral responsibility to be able to do that when people have recalls and they need to be able to get in and see a doctor if they need medication so I guess we yes we're fully booked with our GPs our allied health um, we have wait lists for speech pathology OT um, physio psychology Physio is actually very okay with you can see a physio within that week, um, but our other services are booked are booked out and and the waitlist has been capped. So my waitlist is capped at sixty, speeches is capped at thirty, um, and you know and I feel guilty about that as well because you know the people in our community need these services and and our whole 
point of being here is to try and fill those gaps. So, yeah, we, we, we're certainly working towards it, but we've got a long way to go as well. Um, our imaging, uh, we usually get people within the week for appointments, but um, ultrasound has really pushed out, so we, we've been able to recruit some more staff, so that should alleviate, you know, that need. But that's certainly been... Um, the girls are very busy in there as well. And it's Thrive opened, I understand, May 2021. Mm -hmm. So what's the, what's the future of Thrive and what are the challenges? Yeah, so I guess um, the future is, is pretty exciting, I think, from where we're at right now. So we've, we've got the right people. We've got um, some um, processes worked out, which I think when you grow suddenly, that that sort of goes by the wayside and then everyone gets frustrated because there's, there's no clear way of doing things. So I feel like we're at the point where we've caught up to each other. Yeah. Um, the NDIS space has been, it, we've experienced a massive growth in that in the last two years. And I would love to see us do more and be more creative and innovative and, and people-centred. So what do people want? How do we, you know, um, how do we provide that as a service? And I guess what that comes back to is staffing. Um, you can have the best building, but unless you've got the right staff to deliver that service, you don't have much for business at all. So um, we've actually just engaged a, um, a workforce retention, um, a lady called Dr. Kathy Cross Cosgrove, who's done her PhD in this. And she's actually gonna help us with some strategies on where are our gaps and how do we look to, you know, to meet them and, um, that's, I'm really excited about what that next year is going to look like because that, and I know we're not alone there, you know, that's the, that's the biggest um, barrier, I think, for, for most employers in the far west is how do, we, um, how do we train up people from our own community to make those gaps, but then also how do we recruit new skills to come into the city. And let's talk statistics for a moment. What are the health statistics for places like Broken Hill and you know, in outer regions, how do they compare to the city? Yeah, in terms of health outcomes, yeah, poorly. So the RFDS put out a report, um, I think in 2023, and it looked at the life expectancy for women in remote areas, so we classified as remote, compared to the rest of Australia. And the life expectancy was significantly less. And if you look at, you know, at why, um, they're preventable diseases, they're chronic diseases that we're not managing well. And some of that is, I guess, you know, there's lifestyle factors with that. So they looked at smoking, they looked at um, how much people drink, they looked at how many, how much you exercise throughout the week. Um, but then the other things they looked at is how how how, how accessible um, is the GP for you to see? How many times do you see them per year? And we know that people out here um, are really disadvantaged in a the access to a GP, b the access to the same GP. So. Um, and we call that continuity of care. So if you go back to the same practice, will you see the same person? And I don't know. I mean, anecdotally, I can speak from my own experience. I don't think I've ever seen the same GP um, in the three or three, four years that I've been here. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if that's across the board. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so it's a really difficult problem to solve when it seems like a lot of the GPs are locum GPs. Yeah, we are really fortunate we have the same locum GPs who keep coming back um, on a regular reoccurring basis. That said though, um, they, they're not living here. And I think that is the biggest challenge um, in staffing for GPs that we, we face. So allied health, not so much. People are quite prepared to move out here. Uh, but GPs, I don't think, there isn't that model where they used to be, live and be the town doctor. That's that's no longer really. It, it's very hard to recruit that type of doctor. So I think what you know, and, and we'll work with Kath more on this. But I think really what we need to look at is is where are these people and how do we adapt what we are offering to make that work so that we can give continuity of care to people. Because I think you know that's also goes back to. Um, that relationship you have with your GP. If it's someone that you're first seeing, you might go in there and say, I need this referral. If it's your regular doctor, they'll also go, actually, have you had your pap smear done? And what about this? And they'll know you because they you know, they will know if they've done those things with you. A locum's much less likely to do that because they don't have that history with you. So I think that's, that's a big factor as well in those health statistics. 
So how do we move away from the locum model? Obviously attracting GPs, but how do we attract them? Yeah, that's really interesting. So CATS research is called Attract, Connect and Stay. And it looks at, you know, so not just as, you know, how does Thrive do it, but how do we as a whole community do it? So they they look at the the model of having a community connector. So someone who, you know, um, say the person who moves here, their husband can't find a job in this area or they can't get childcare or, um, you know, um, housing's an issue. So how do we look at solutions to those problems so that we can attract people to move here? Because you hear that often, you know, I wanted to move but I couldn't get childcare or I wanted to do this but, um, you know, there were no rentals in that area. So how do we look at addressing those those problems for people so they want to come and live here? What what reforms do you think needs to happen at a broader level like mm. that's a really good point so yes if we are reliant on a locum model then we have to pay locums you know significantly um, to be able to afford them what I guess what we we have here is we do a mixed billing model so we we have some people we bulk bill but predominantly we pay you know people have to pay a gap which is you know there's a whole trend across Australia um, which is pushing towards that I think the issue in remote areas is we're having to pay more for GPs to come out here and there's a big gap between what the revenue that we're bringing in through Medicare and mixed billings and what we're having to pay out. So for an example, you know, last year um, the medical part of our business um, ran a loss because we're having, you know, we're having to pay them more than what Medicare are providing us with revenue for. So. I think there's a huge need to look at remote areas and say, do we need to have a, an increased levy on those those rates so that it's comparable to what you know people would um, be paying in metro areas for locums? Because I think that's, that's so the, the Medicare levy is not different for a regional area. No, and you look at, for example, NDIS. Um, there's a 40% loading, you know, in Broken Hill that we we get because we're in you know, in a remote area. And what that does is it allows us to be able to pay people more. Like, And that's why we have been able to recruit allied health specialists. And, you know, we have been able to provide them with accommodation and assist getting them set up and, and provide childcare because we've got a bit more of a buffer to play with. If you did that in the Medicare space, it would make a huge difference. So I think there needs to be reforms at that level. And the other comment that I've heard is that when it comes to Medicare, um, that you can only kind of bill on face-to-face time and it doesn't account for all of the kind of exactly. time outside of that Yes, absolutely. that doctors need to yeah. do reports or get referrals and information. So That's right. would you have a comment on that as well? Yeah, there is so much time. And I think until you've, you know, you've really seen what goes into comprehensive care of, of patient care, um, that isn't when the patient's sitting there in that seat. It's behind the scenes, it's checking on results, it's ringing them, it's, um, you know, having a chat to the pharmacist about the, the dosage of the medication, it's having a chat to their physio, is, are they progressing, are they not? And that's not billable through Medicare. So if we're looking at, you know, um, providing better primary healthcare, we need, really need to be including that into capturing that into how GPs are funded. You mentioned earlier that it's easier to attract allied health services to Broken Hill than GPs, but um, I know that we need allied health workers. And just to use myself as a bit of an example, um, last year I got NDIS early intervention funding for my three and a half year old son. The process of getting the funding was really good actually, Mm -hmm. but trying to find therapy services, I knew that would be hard. I was told the only option for me for um, OT or speech pathology, which was what was recommended for us, was um, to go to this fly-in, fly-out service from Adelaide, and they were coming to Broken Hill once a month, uh, once a fortnight, doing an hour therapy and then flying home and seeing lots of other patients in Broken Hill. So I started that. Um, towards the end of last year we had three months and then the start of this year I get a phone call from them saying sorry we have to change your OT and that was really frustrating for me because Mm. we'd only just got to the point where I felt like we were starting to actually make some progress or the OT was getting to know my son Mm -hmm. and vice versa feeling him feeling comfortable with her and so I felt like I was going back to the beginning Um, but then also from a financial point of view, 
and it's not paid by me it's paid by the taxpayer but you know this group charges 270 for the um the therapy which is i guess the standard amount Mm -hmm. and then i was charged 270 for um, a travel component Mm. so 540 dollars um, for a one-hour therapy session and that's obviously happening with lots of other people in Broken Hill mm-hmm. and interestingly I um, note that this business posted on Facebook today actually that um, they were looking for a space in Broken Hill and they have nine clinicians mm-hmm. that come here once a fortnight and they were looking to increase that to um, one weekly so such is the demand mm. but I just think, how is this sustainable? Mm. Why can't we get more allied health professionals who live here? Because, um, yeah, I'm also frustrated by the fact that there could be quite high turnover. Like I could have another OT and then it mm. change again. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, I do have a locally <laughs> a new OT locally, but you know, that's not going to be everyone's experience. Mm. And the other thing that parents don't really have any choice about what service they get, they'll just take whatever they can get. Mm. Um, so do you have any comment on that? Absolutely. I have a lot to comment on that. I, I, there are so many parts of that. So first of all, work, workforce recruitment and retention should be our number one focus, I think, for allied health. It is, certainly is in our strategic plan. The issues, I think, um, that we're facing around that is, you know, there are so many jobs out there. And, um, you know, I, I can't comment on this company, but there's a lot of people that are in there just because they can see the money-making side of it and, you know, they aren't providing good clinical supervision. They're throwing them into positions where they, um, you know, don't necessarily have the training or the experience to do the the, all, the full components of the job that they're doing. Um, and the burnout rate in OT, um, I've been in OT for over 20 years now and I love my, my job. I, I think I'll be in OT for the rest of my life. But they're turning people off of the industry because it's turned into this, you know, um, money-making yeah, exercise. money-making exercise. And the only way I think we really need to, like, we need to refocus how people think about remote health. So it's it, it's certainly seen as something you, you do at the start of your career, and then um, you know you move somewhere else that you want to live, and um, you know you you don't um, really have to go back and do that again. And I think it's the opposite. I think it's pro- like the most rewarding thing I have done is to have a career um, in the in Broken Hill. And, and why it's satisfying is you're helping people who can't access those services otherwise. It's diverse, like the problem solving, and you know you have to be resourceful. You have to think outside the box. Those skills set you up for anything you want to do for the rest of your life. So I really think we need to somehow tweak university courses so that people get that exposure to this is what rural practice looks like you know there's certainly police education they have components of their time which has to be in the country that's how my mum met my dad actually she got sent out to one of those places with about 10 kids and (laughs) they had the welcome the teacher barbecue no there were about 100 kids and she met my dad um but they um I guess we need to need to change how rural practice is perceived but you also need to change it for families because they're not able to access the services they're not getting early intervention and then just going back to I guess the, the conversations that you've had with Jane on things like literacy levels and you know cognition when kids are starting school they're they're delayed and they're delayed because they're not getting access to the services that we need and personally I don't think we fix it by fly and fly out model I think we fix it from the ground up with you know um, making people want to go on to study in, but at a university level locally and then come back to live in that community. So I think I think there's lots that needs to be done, but I think if we're just expecting people to move out here, I think we're only capturing a little bit of the population. I think we need to be changing our whole focus of the town that um, have dreams, have goals, aspire to be whatever you want to be, and maybe that hopefully that's an occupational therapist or a speech therapist. So you're saying about trying to encourage people who are born and bred Broken Hill people to consider occupational therapy as a career? Mm, I think people are much more likely to come back to regional areas if they've had that exposure. And I, I know I didn't grow up here, but I, I did grow up in a 
in that town that I just spoke of. <laughs> that, you know, I, I was familiar with um, small communities and I loved that. So that made me, I think, fit in really well here. And uh, um, just to go back a step, um, I note before that you, you know, you're using um, childcare as an example of how we need to support people to move to town. And you've kind of um, spearheaded a new way of handling childcare yeah. for Thrive. Can you tell me about that? I'd love to tell you about that. So um, Phoebe, who I, um, when I said we had, you know, started with one OT and and then went to two, Phoebe was the very first person I employed. So um, we we worked really closely together. Phoebe fell in love with Mick and Mick's from Broken Hill and Phoebe wasn't. And then um, Phoebe was keen to get out of Broken Hill. So um, she they moved to Wagga Wagga and she was like, yes, I've finally got him out of Broken Hill. Anyway, and then Mick um, changed careers and he was a plumber and then he, um, he wanted to be a livestock agent. So he did a traineeship with elders. And so the, when he completed that, they said to him, oh, we've got a job for you. It's in Broken Hill. <laughs> so Phoebe's like, no, I've just, <laughs> I've just got him out. Um, and I was rejoicing because I've, like, I've got this huge wait list, Phoebe, you can help me. And she came back and she, she said to Heather, I would, but I have to wait two years to get Winnie, her daughter, into childcare. And I said, that's ridiculous. We could fix that. It's got to be easier to get childcare than it is to find another OT. So um, I contacted um, Amanda Peterson, who had looked after my children when they were... Um, very young and you know that also you know has been really important in in allowing me to have the I guess career progression that I have is the support that I had around me so Amanda my parents extended family have all you know really contributed to that so I said to Amanda you know what about it her youngest daughter just started school and <laughs> Amanda was like oh okay so it started in my house and then within um Seriously, within three months, we had five children between Monday and Thursday of people who wanted to come back into the workforce but couldn't because they couldn't get childcare. So we found a clinical psychologist that way. You know, we had our admin team who um, would, could have worked more days but they couldn't because they couldn't have childcare. We had support workers. Um, so it really, for us, we looked at, and I remember suggesting this to the accountant and they looked at me like I had two heads, but I was like, you try being a young mum. It's, it's very hard. It's, <laughs> it's isolating in terms of if you can't get both the children in one day, you actually can't commit to going back to work. So um, you're out of the workforce when you don't need to be. And if you look at, if we can't get those people from within in our own community, we're going to have to fly people in and you're looking at locum rates are more expensive, you're looking at flights, accommodation, the cost of childcare per hour compared to what a locum model is, is so much better for an organisation financially. And also, I guess, for me, um, I think what guides a lot of my decision making is um, remembering, like remembering what it was like to be a young mum and going through that process. And, and what would I do if that was my dad? Or what would I do if that was my brother who was in that position? And that's, I guess, how I think about healthcare. Like, what would I do for that person if they were my in my immediate family and I think that's such an important thing for us to focus on when we're our, our workforce is primarily made up of young women so how are we going to how do we how do we help them mm. and this was a really practical way that we could and it's I mean it's so great that you had the capacity to do that too and to kind of pull on your network of people to create that I mean it'd be great if more businesses could do that but yeah but also understand that they're also holding a lot of pressures Yes. To do that, but yeah. you know, I think <clears throat> childcare is a big one to, oh, to to solve. Absolutely, especially you know in areas, and I know we're not alone like of having this issue. Um, and I think you have to have people around you who are willing to run with crazy ideas sometimes. So, um, you know, my son was at boarding school when I turned his room into the childcare. <laughs> And he, he came home and he's like, Mom, what's happened? <laughs> Sorry, Kevin, <laughs> but you know, and he, he's he, yeah, he's an amazing kid. So, um, you know, I think if you can be a bit, you can think outside the box. And I think that's really as employers what we need to do. You need to go, what what are our barriers, and how do we help? Um, if we if we overcome this barrier, how's it going to solve our problem? And and is that worth it? And for us, it's definitely been worth it. Mm. You've been in Broken Hill now for, what, 13, 14 years? Yes. 
um, what's kept you here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's this network of people around you that, you know, if your child's stuck at footy or if you're stuck in a meeting and you can say, can you pick Harry up or can you chop Zoe here? And they just, you know, respond with no worries. So I think it's those, um, those networks, those relationships. Um, my parents are here and they've been amazing support. Um, and I guess the relationship that they've had with my, my children as well. Um, but I love that, you know, that, that there's a generational um, aspect of, of bringing up children that I've had um, because we're all in the same town. Um, and I think, you know, that's personally, but I think professionally, there's so many opportunities in, in areas like these if people are prepared to move outside of the city and give it a go. And I guess for me, sometimes, you know, I think, would I have had these opportunities if I was in Adelaide? Would it have been this, um, would I have been so fortunate? And I don't know if I would have, because, you know, um, Steve often says that, he said, Broken Hill, you can be whoever you want to be here. You can make it whatever you want to make it. And um, and to be honest, for me, that took a while in Broken Hill because I, I wasn't from here and it took a while for people to be able to trust me. But I, I think he's, he's right in that it's one of those towns that there's a huge amount of need so that if you can be creative in, in what you're doing and how you're doing it, there is a great potential um, to, to build something. What does it take to break into the town? Yeah, that's interesting. And I think if, if you think of... Um, and there's no maliciousness there. People don't, they don't want, like, um, they, they're just protective and they're loyal. So I, I think if you can understand that and you can understand um, why they're feeling like that and you can be patient with the process of, build, of developing relationships and building trust, then that's sort of the point where, where things tip. And I guess for me, because Steve, um, I guess, saw potential in me that... You know, Steve was a well-known um, member of the Broken Hill community, so that I've probably got there by association a little bit. But um, I think also people in Broken Hill, if you do um, show that you really want to help improve things, that they, they can see that as well. But it just does take some time. Well, Heather, it's been such a privilege to talk to you and to hear the story of Thrive and your own professional journey. And um, I just wanted to say, is there anything else you wanted to say before we concluded our chat today? No, thank you very much. <laughs> that was Heather Pearce, an occupational therapist and CEO of Thrive Medical in Broken Hill. You've been listening to A Home in the Outback, an independent podcast about people living, working and creating in the far west of New South Wales. 